Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope you're doing well. We are having a, a few uh, technical difficulties, so bear with us if, uh, if something happens. Today we're going to be doing a very cheery psalm, uh, Psalm 137. This is probably a psalm that you might have crocheted on a pillow somewhere in your house. Perhaps it's up on the wall of your children's room, something about dashing the babies against the rocks. And so uh, this is one of those psalms that we just don't know what to do with. It's one of those things that as we're reading through the book of Psalms, we read this and we think, that's kind of weird, and we just move on, and we don't actually stop to process what's being said. Now, this is not the only place something like this occurs. We actually see this with a lot of our children's songs and like nursery rhymes that we sing to our kids, okay? I'll give you a few examples. You know the song, Three Blind Mice? Three Blind Mice. I'm not going to sing it. I know you want me to. Three Blind Mice is not at all about mice that are blind. Do you know what the story's really about? It's about three Protestant noblemen that were burned at the stake under the reign of Mary Tudor I. Mary Tudor I was a vehemently Catholic queen of England, and she persecuted so many Protestants that she got the nickname Bloody Mary, hence the drink at a restaurant, okay? That's what three blind, but we'll just go to our kids and we'll sing and we'll smile. Protestants were burned at the stake. That's what we're doing, okay? You've probably heard this also with Ring Around the Rosie is possibly a reference to the Black Death, to uh, the bubonic plague, which, uh, whereas COVID, the death rate's under half a percent, the bubonic plague, it was 60 to 80%, and you died within a few days. And so people would carry these uh, flowers and stuff in their pockets so they wouldn't smell all the death. That's what a pocket full of posy is. And then ashes, ashes, we all fall down is a reference to death. And yet to this day, I will get on the trampoline with my daughter and we'll jump around and sing Ring Around the Rosie and we'll all fall down and laugh because the bubonic plague is hilarious, right? So that's what's going on possibly with that song. Now, by the way, all these examples are debated. There are some scholars that say yes, others that say no. So so take it for what it's worth. The last one I'll give you is uh, some people think that the the song about Jack and Jill, you know, they're going up the hill to fetch a a pail of water, though typically water runs down hills. That's where they're going. A lot of people think that this is actually a reference to King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette being beheaded during the French Revolution. That's why Jack loses his crown and Jill's head comes tumbling after, okay? But we just, we say these words, we we don't really think about what they mean, and we do the same thing with this psalm. So today we're going to learn how to read a new type of psalm. Throughout the book of Psalms, we've picked some select genres. We've talked about lament psalms. We've talked about royal and messianic psalms. We've talked about psalms of ascent and all these other types of psalms. Today, we're going to give you a new type of psalm that we have not done yet in this series, and it is what is called an imprecatory psalm, okay? It is what is called an imprecatory psalm. Imprecation is where you're praying a curse over somebody. It's where you're asking God to strike or kill your enemies. It's a psalm of vengeance is really what's going on. So this psalm is really unique because it starts as a lament. It moves into like a hymn, but it ends as a curse. How do we apply that today? How do do you apply this text asking God to kill your enemy's babies? How do we apply that in a Christian context today? This will be very, very helpful for you anytime you come across a text where the the psalmist is praying for vengeance. The psalmist is praying for God to strike their enemies. Let me give you a little background to the psalm and then we'll pray and get into it. We don't know who wrote this psalm, okay? It doesn't have a superscription like of David or something like a lot of psalms do. Uh, Some people think it was David. Some people even think it was Jeremiah. It probably though was written after the Babylonian exile. So give you a uh, a little Jewish history here. The Hebrew people used to be one kingdom, and then they had this division, and you got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was exiled into Assyria in 722 BC. 
And then the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled into Babylon in 587, 586 BC. What happened is God said, if you will obey my commands, things will go well for you. And Israel instead acted like the pagan nations. Instead of worshiping Yahweh, what did they do? They worshiped idols. And so God says, you want idols? I'll give you all the idols you can handle. You want to be like a pagan nation? How about I make you a pagan nation? And so they get exiled. And so though this psalm could have been written during the Babylonian exile, it probably happened after they came back, once they were allowed to go back home, and the psalmist is reflecting on what it was like to be in Babylonian exile. Everybody with me? Let's pray, and then we'll get into this text. King Jesus, we thank you that you're good and that you love us, and we just ask for help. We confess that we need help in a difficult text. This text strikes us, especially as 21st century Americans, as very odd. And so I pray that we uh, wouldn't do this just to, to have shock value, but rather learn to read all of your word. We confess that all of it's profitable, all of it's inspired, all of it's good. So would you help us as we jump into this text? It's for your name and your glory we pray, amen. All right, let's look at verse one. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Let's look at that first phrase there. It starts off by the waters of Babylon, which is weird because it actually sounds like it's gonna be something good, right? When you hear the waters of Babylon, that almost sounds like a fancy hotel in Dubai or something. It sounds like it's gonna be something really good. The Psalm starts off by the waters of Babylon. It's kinda like how the phrase, waterboarding at Guantanamo Bay sounds like a ton of fun if you don't know what those terms mean, okay? It's kind of like that. You think, oh, it's a day at the beach. It is not a day at the beach, right? So it starts off in this way that seems like it's gonna be peaceful, seems like it's gonna be encouraging, and it turns really quickly. Now, why is he referencing the waters of Babylon? This could be a river or something outside or near the city. Here's most likely what the reference is. King Nebuchadnezzar, who is this great king of Babylon. Babylon is one of these ancient kingdoms that is just well known. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. King Nebuchadnezzar diverted water from the Euphrates River to create these water canals and these channels throughout the city of Babylon so that people would have fresh water. And so the psalmist is thinking back to what it was like being in Babylon by the water and being absolutely overwhelmed with sorrow. He says this, by the waters of Babylon, look at that next phrase. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. What is Zion? Zion is here what is known as a synecdoche. There's a fancy term for you. That's a literary phrase, a synecdoche. What does that mean? Ask your friends who are English majors. A synecdoche is where you take part of something to refer to all of it. So I'll give you a few examples. If I say the U.S. put troops on the ground in Iraq, or I'm sorry, if I say the U.S. put boots on the ground in Iraq, do I mean a plane flew over and just dropped off a ton of boots? What do I mean? Soldiers, troops, right? I actually gave it away as I misspoke a second ago and said troops on the ground. I ruined my own thing. So boots is a synecdoche. I don't mean they just had boots. Boots is just part of the gear that a soldier needs, and so it's a reference to all of it. Or if I say, you pull up in your car and I say, man, that is a sweet set of wheels. Does that mean I hate your car and I just love your wheels? Maybe if you've got some six spinners or something, but typically I'm just saying, I like your car. That's a sweet set of wheels. That's a synecdoche. Or if I say, open a bottle of bubbly. Bubbly is a synecdoche. It's part of champagne, but really what I'm saying is open a bottle of champagne. Zion is used that way throughout the Bible and it's used here. The issue is not just that the psalmist is homesick and wants to go home. Zion can be a synecdoche. It can be this symbol for usually one of four things. It can be the fortress that David took from the Jebusites. It can be a reference to the Temple Mount where the temple was in Jerusalem. It can be a reference to Jerusalem itself 
or it can be a, rep, uh, you know, a representation of the Israelite people. So when he's thinking about Zion, he's not just saying, man, I wanna go home, I don't like Babylon. What he's saying is, he's thinking of all the things that Jerusalem stands for, all the things that Zion stands for, all the promises of God, the purity of God, the salvation of God, atonement, Israel being God's people. He's thinking all of that, and he's looking around and thinking, God must be a liar. God, must, God said that the Jews would rule the world that the kingdom of Jerusalem would be exalted above the other kingdoms. And here we are in Babylon. What is happening? Let's look at verses two through four. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. What is a lyre? A lyre is kind of like a stringed instrument, like we would think of today, maybe as a harp or even a guitar. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song or Yahweh's song in a foreign land? Look at that first phrase there, verse two. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Now, as I'm getting older and as I've been a dad longer, I've started to take on some dad traits, okay? I don't know if you know this, but for some reason, dads just start doing things the longer they become dads. I'll share a few of these with you. First of all, I make dad jokes, okay? Dad jokes are jokes that are not really funny, but they're funny to like a five-year-old. So it's one of those things where like you're at the grocery store and, the, you know, the, and they say something like, you know, there's no price tag on this. And what do you say? Must be free. And they're like, this is the first time today I've heard that, right? It's a dad joke. It's not really funny. It's not a real joke, but it's something that dads do, okay? Or another thing that dads do is if you go on vacation, we as dads will get up earlier than everyone else and then be condescending because they slept in on vacation, right? We'll get up early and they'll get out and you're like, hey, sleepyhead, are you just gonna, are you gonna waste all day sleeping? I don't know why dads do that, but dads do that, okay? Here's another one. Anytime it rains, a dad says this, man, we really needed it. Why? Why does everyone say that? We know that we need rain. Everyone would die without rain. You're also probably not a farmer when you say that. It's just something dads say. And then lastly, Dads care a lot about what kind of trees things are. You'll be riding down the road and a dad will be like, you see that, that's a maple tree. And you're like, oh, I didn't ask what kind of tree that was, right? That's just something that happens. Now, here's why I say that. In studying for this passage, commentators and scholars make a really big deal about what kind of tree this is. Like there's a lot of fighting. Is this a willow? Is this a poplar? And they fight each other over it. This is the kind of trees that grew in the ancient Near East and all that kind of stuff, okay? Here's the answer. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to the psalm. The point of the psalm is not to give you some taxonomy of trees. I like to think that it's a willow, though, because it's weeping. But it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that they are unwilling to worship. Why are they unwilling to worship? Well, here's what it says. Verse three, for there are captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We don't know whether or not they're refusing to sing because they're sad or more likely because they're being mocked, but either way, that's why they're not worshiping. Here's what's going on here. The, is, the, the, the Jewish people are exiled in Babylon and the Babylonians come up and they start making fun of them and making fun of their God. That's what they're doing. You understand if you're a Babylonian, you think that the Jewish God is awful. After all, you conquered him. You conquered the Jewish people. So you think that your God, Marduk of Babylon, is better than Yahweh of Israel. That's what you're thinking. And so they're going up and they're making fun of these Jewish people and making fun of their gods or their God. And so maybe here's a good way to say it. Let's say that you were in the US Army and you got captured by ISIS or Al-Qaeda or one of these terrorist groups. And as you're suffering in this prison, they come and they hand you a guitar and they say, 
Will you sing to me the Star-Spangled Banner? Will you sing to me God Bless America? Remind me of how powerful you are. Remind me of how mighty you are. Go ahead, sing for me. That's what's going on, okay? That's what's going on. And so the Jews here are not refusing to sing because they don't love God. They're refusing to give in to these mocking demands of their captors, okay? They're mocking demands of their captors. Verses five through six. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Here we see something that we as Westerners are not very familiar with. This is the psalmist pronouncing a curse on himself. So let me give you a quick theology of cursing. By cursing, I don't mean what we think of as cursing today, which is like cussing, using like four-letter words when somebody cuts you off in traffic or something like that. That's not what I mean. We shouldn't be doing that. We're to have pure speech. What I mean is a biblical theology of blessing and cursing. In the Bible, to pronounce a blessing on somebody means that you're asking God to do something to them. So if I say, let me bless you, may you have a long life and may you have a bunch of children. I can't control how long your life is and I can't control how many kids you have. I'm asking God to do that. That's the idea of blessing. Or if I curse you and I say, may you have a short life and may you forever be barren, something like that. What I am then doing is I can't control that. I'm asking God to make your life worse. That's the idea of blessing and cursing in the Bible. We can't control stuff. God controls everything, good and bad. And so therefore, God will either bless or God will curse. Well, what the psalmist is doing is he's pronouncing a self-curse. If I forget God, if I turn away from the faith, if I forget the God of Israel, may this curse happen to me. God, may you curse me if I turn away from you. That's what he's saying, okay? And you see that the way that this is laid out in these verses is what is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a structural technique where you go A, B, B, A. Or you might go A, B, C, C, B, A. Here's what I mean by that. What he's doing is he's saying, he's saying, if I forget you, let this bad thing happen. Let this bad thing happen if I forget you, okay? Now, why does he pronounce this curse that his hand will lose its skill and his mouth will stick to the roof, or his tongue will stick to the roof of his mouth. Not like when you have a brain freeze with a, a Slurpee or something and you try to get, not like that, but like dry, where he's, his tongue is tight. It's not loose to where he can speak. Well, what some people think is going on is it's just a generic self-curse. God, if I forget you, may I be mute and crippled, okay? However, I think there's more that's going on here. I think the reason he mentions his mouth and the reason he mentions his hands is because those are the very things that he needs to worship. It just mentioned the lyres that you would play with your right hand, and it also mentioned singing these songs of Zion. And so what he is saying is this. It's really fascinating. Follow me here, because there's a lot of theology here that we don't have time to unpack. I just want to, to just give you a little glimpse of this. Part of God's judgment on those who turn away from him is that they don't get to worship him. Okay? If I forget you, O oh God, may I not even be able to worship you. May I no longer be able to play the lyre. May I no longer be able to sing to you. The, the, the thing that brings the most joy to humans is worshiping God. That's why you were designed. Worshiping God is the sole reason you exist. It is what brings humans the highest happiness. Humans are the happiest when we're worshiping. And part of God's judgment for those that turn away is that they don't even get to worship. What is hell other than not getting to worship God in joy? You still give God glory because you're being judged but you don't get to do so in a state of joy. So I think what he's saying is, if I turn away from you, O God, may I not even be able to worship. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth and may my hand forget its skill. Now, on that note, it's time to talk about Jewish reggae music, okay? 
There are not a lot of songs about Psalm 137, as you might imagine. It doesn't really score highly on the, the, the pop charts, but there is actually a song that I found that references Psalm 137. It's by a Jewish reggae artist named Madis Yahu, which means in Hebrew, gift of Yahweh, gift of God. And so he has a song based on these verses. Again, I'm not going to sing it to you, but I want you to see some of the lyrics. You can listen to it in the car, listen to it with your kids. You know, again, Jewish reggae, all of our favorite types of music. Let me just read you the lyrics on this song called Jerusalem, okay? We're gonna put it up on the screen. It says, Jerusalem, if I forget you, fire not gonna come from me tongue. That's how he says it, okay? <laughs> Jerusalem, if I forget you, fire not, fire's not gonna come from my tongue, meaning I won't praise you, I won't be able to pronounce judgment, I won't have prophecy, that's the idea. Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. In the ancient days, we'll return with no delay, picking up the bounty and the spoils on our way. We've been traveling from state to state and them don't understand what they say. 3,000 years with no place to be and they want me to give up my milk and honey. You see the reference there to the promised land. Now listen to these next two verses because this will make sense of why he's remembering Jerusalem, okay? Don't you see it's not about the land or the sea, not the country, but the dwelling of his majesty. That's the idea of remembering Jerusalem. Yes, the land is important, but why is the land important? Because God is there. God is equally everywhere. God is not a spatial being. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere or nowhere, depending on what you wanna say, but he's not a spatial being. The reason Jerusalem is really important though is because that is where you as a worshiper in the Old Testament most feel God's presence. He's equally everywhere. He's God, he's spirit, he's not a man. But you most feel God's presence in the temple. So when he's referring to Jerusalem, the idea is not just this city that I'm from, okay? Rather, he's saying, if I forget God, if I forget why Jerusalem's special, if I forget Yahweh, that's what he's saying, may I not even be able to worship. Now, two things I want you to see here. If you're going through some type of suffering or if you're being persecuted, two things I want you to see just from these few verses, okay? First of all, notice that they are remaining faithful even though they don't have joy. They're remaining worshipers of Yahweh. They're not, they're not gonna sing for their captors and give them the delight of mocking them. But he's not forgetting Jerusalem. He's not losing his faith. He's not turning away from God. What he is doing is he is remaining faithful even though the feelings aren't there, even though he doesn't have the joy. Ideally, you want to have the right action and the right heart. That's the best way to serve God. You, you do the right action that he's commanded in scripture and you do it with a heart that loves God. But what do you do when your heart's not into it? Well, you don't do the wrong action because you feel like you're being inauthentic. Rather, you do the right action while you wait for your heart to catch up. You read the Bible when you want to. Or I'm sorry, you read the Bible not just when you want to, the opposite of what I've said. That was a technical difficulty, that wasn't me, that was the mic. You read your Bible even when you don't want to and you let your heart catch up. You pray even when you don't want to and you let your heart catch up. You remain faithful to your spouse even when you don't want to and you let your heart catch up. You do the right action while you wait for your heart to catch up because part of the way you train your heart is through that action. So notice that though he doesn't have joy, he doesn't enjoy being a captive in Babylon, he's still remaining faithful. He's still remaining faithful, okay? The other thing you need to know, if you're going through some type of suffering, you're going through some type of despair, you're going through some type of persecution, here's what you need to remember the way that you will get through that if God even decides to let you out of it and doesn't just take you home or have you suffer for the rest of your life is by remembering the promises of God. When you go through suffering, you go through despair, the first thing we typically do is forget God's promises and we just focus on the issue. We just focus on the despair. We just focus on the suffering. We just focus on Babylon. Instead, you have to remind yourself when you're going through awful seasons to remind yourself, I'm loved by the God of the universe. I can't lose my salvation. 
everything's going to be okay. Worst case scenario for me is resurrection and eternal bliss. You see, by applying eternal promises to temporary situations, it helps you endure. It helps you get through those things. The reason that so many of us suffer more than we have to is because we give in to the despair. The bad times are gonna come. The difficult issues are gonna come. Welcome to life, okay? But whether or not you fall into despair depends on whether or not you remember the promises of God. And what he's doing by remembering Jerusalem is he's remembering what Jerusalem stands for. Everything that God has promised, God's salvation, God's mercy, etc. okay, etc. Look at verse seven. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. Now, verse seven's where it's gonna start getting spicy. We had to get through one through six because it's God's word, it's important, it's helpful. But really starting in verse seven, we start to think, what do we do with this? Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So the psalmist said that he would remember Jerusalem, but now he's gonna ask God to remember something. And what God is supposed to remember is what the Edomites did when the Babylonians were attacking Jerusalem. Okay, so let me, let me just explain this real quick. In the Old Testament, you have Israel. Those are the people of God and they follow Yahweh. You then have the other nations which follow demons. That's what it means when you don't follow the God. Any God that is not the God of the Bible is a demon, okay? So you have demons and you have the other nations worshiping their idols and their false God, which are demons, okay? And that's what you have. And so Israel is not very popular with the other nations and they have a bunch of ancient enemies, whether it is Assyria, whether it is Egypt, whether it's here like we see Edom. So Edom was this ancient kingdom that was an enemy of Israel. And what happened is when the Babylonians came in to destroy Jerusalem, to to exile these people, do you think the Edomites came and helped out the the Judeans, the, the Jewish people in the South? They did not. You know what they did? They cheered on the Babylonians. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so what the the psalmist is doing is he's thinking back to that event. When Babylon attacked us and this other nation cheered them on and didn't come to our aid, didn't help us, God, may you remember that they did that to us. That's what he's saying, okay? So, So to give more vivid imagery that the text here gives, do you see the phrase where it says, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations? In Hebrew, there are overtones of that passage of rape, okay? Laying it bare has to do with ripping clothes off and foundations is down to nakedness. So Jerusalem is seen as this woman who's being sexually assaulted by the Babylonians. And instead of helping this woman, the Edomites cheer for the Babylonians. That's what's going on in this text. Let me give you a few passages that reference this type of thing. Jerusalem being seen as this woman having her clothes torn off by these pagan nations. Lamentations 4.21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uts. Uts is how that's pronounced, not Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Notice the same kind of language. Ezekiel 24, 12 through 14, thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended and taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. And I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. They shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. And then Obadiah. You didn't even know Obadiah was a book of the Bible, did you? You thought it was just some Amish guy or something. Obadiah 1, 10 through 11, directly references this. Talking about Edom, it says this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, that's Israel, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. 
on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. That's what's going on here. He's saying, God, remember that the Edomites did not help us when we needed help. In fact, they joined the side of the Babylonians and give them their just desserts, okay? I like, I wanna give a little illustration of that. I, I, I like the superhero Batman, okay? Now, let me tell you why. I don't like Superman. He's unrealistic. His greatest enemy is like a green rock and he's too powerful, right? He has x-ray vision and laser vision and he's strong and he can fly and he can divide by zero. He's like Chuck Norris, right? It's, there's too many things that he can do. I don't like Aquaman because all the crime's happening on the land. Thanks for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. The reason I like Batman is for two reasons. First of all, he could actually exist, okay? Now, wait, let me clarify what I mean by that. That sounded weird. I don't think Batman exists. I don't believe in Batman, don't believe in ghosts, don't believe in aliens, don't believe in yetis, I don't believe in any of that stuff. What I mean is, someone could actually be Batman. You could just be a billionaire and get like a snarky British butler and do some sick ninja karate and you could be Batman, okay? I think that's fantastic. Now, I don't like how everything is bat something, right? He's got the Batmobile and the bat cycle and the Batarang. He goes to eat, he gets a bat burger, which is I'm pretty sure how we got COVID. And so I don't like... <laughs> I don't like that, but I like that he, he, he could be real. And here's the other thing that I like. I like vigilante style justice, don't you? It feels good. You think to yourself, wait a second, there's all these crimes going on and all these criminals that are not being punished. So we need somebody to bring justice. We need somebody to do bad things to bad people. That's why we like Batman. That's why I like Batman, okay? He's kind of this wounded hero who gives people their just desserts. There is something in the human heart that wants vindication. So here's what you need to hear in this text as a Christian, okay? The desire you have when somebody has wronged you for you to get vindication and for God to judge them is not wrong or sinful. What's wrong and sinful is when you try to carry it out, when you try to be Batman, okay? So if there's someone right now that you're bitter with, okay, how do we apply this in a Christian context? If there's somebody right now you're bitter with, you're mad at, you don't want to forgive. When their name shows up on the caller ID, you roll your eyes. When you see something they put on social media, you just want to throw your computer through the window. That person, okay? How do you actually forgive that person? Because you're commanded to forgive. You're commanded to forgive. Here's something that we learn from this text. Here's how you actually forgive. Ready? You give that vengeance to God knowing that God will bring the rain, knowing that God will bring the vengeance, okay? So, so here's the deal. The reason that it is hard for us to forgive somebody is because we feel like we're letting them off the hook, okay? That's why it's hard to forgive. Someone's wronged us and we think I can't forgive them because if I forgive them, they go free. If I forgive them, I've let them off the hook. Here's what you need to understand. You've never let them off the hook. You've just put them on God's hook. Vengeance will be done. The desire you have is a righteous desire. It's wrong though when you walk in bitterness because you won't let God be the Batman. You won't let God be the one who brings that vengeance. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you have trouble forgiving somebody and for years you just thought, man, I try to forgive them and I get mad again. Instead of thinking of forgiveness as letting them off the hook, think of forgiveness as turning them over to God so that God can judge them. But there will be justice. There will be judgment. Someone who has wronged you will be judged and their punishment has either been paid for by Christ if they're a Christian or they will pay for, for it forever in hell, but justice is going to be done. Let me read you a few passages that focus on that, like in verse seven. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread and eat. 
And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Romans 12, 17 through 19, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Thessalonians 4.6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. And now I wanna read a little section from a blog. It's not out yet. We're working on it here at Parkway. It's called Forgiving Someone Who Hurt You Deeply. I wanna read this to you. Forgiving someone doesn't really let them off the hook in God's mind. We often think that if we forgive someone, then they will, they, we will never really be vindicated. We think that person deserves to pay, but they will pay. God is clear that everyone will give an account. We are not to seek vengeance for the very reason that God has promised that he will seek vengeance. When you forgive, you're not letting the person go free from vengeance. You're just shifting who gets to carry out the vengeance from you to God. To say it another way, let go and let God who doesn't let go. You can forgive your enemies because you know that apart from their conversion, God will not forgive them. Part of the way that you learn to forgive is you realize the hurt that you've experienced is real. You just don't get to carry out the punishment. You don't get to do, uh, you, you don't get to play the role of the state in like a, a criminal thing and be this vigilante. Now, our culture hates this idea. Our culture hates the idea that we give our vengeance to God. Our culture hates the idea that we forgive our oppressor. What does our culture say? The opposite. It says, oppress your oppressor. Strike back, rise up, take back the power. That's what our culture does. Our culture hates this idea that God has to carry out the justice, that God has to carry out the vengeance because a lot in culture don't believe in the Christian God. And so if God's not gonna be just, then we've gotta have perfect justice now, so might as well condemn some innocent people along the way. That's what our culture does. But listen to this text in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 23. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Look at this next part. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, is it to you if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Zach, are you saying that if I have been oppressed, that if somebody has caused me to suffer, that instead of striking back, instead of taking back the power, I'm supposed to give that to God and forgive them? I'm not saying that. The Bible is saying that. And it is very countercultural, okay? As one pastor says, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it, okay? I just deliver it. Verses nine through, uh, eight through nine. Here's where it really gets spicy. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, that's a reference to babies, and dashes them against the rock. The psalmist has pronounced a curse on himself if he forgets Jerusalem, and now he pronounces a blessing on the one to destroy Babylon, okay? Now, this text is so offensive, it is so weird most of us have never considered it. Raise your hand in here if you've heard sermons on, one, on Psalm 137. Nobody, maybe one, right? You haven't heard this because we don't know what to do with it. That's not just us, that's throughout church history. Guys in church history don't know how to interpret this, so they make it metaphorical. 
They make it allegorical. Methodius thought that Babylon was symbolic of our struggles in life and that the harps, the lyres, were symbolic of our bodies, which must be disciplined. That's not at all what this text means, right? Gregory of Nazianzus thought that verse four meant that Christians should deal with disputes internally and not air their dirty laundry to outsiders. That's what he considered to be singing Yahweh's song in a foreign land. The early church leader Origen took the violent passages in verse nine to refer to the Christian's duty to dash the heads of our temptations when they're young, when they're nascent, Hence the phrase, little ones, against the rock of reason and truth. So what does this text mean? You take all your sins, and when they're little, you destroy them with reason. That's what Origen is saying. Even the great Ambrose, the teacher of Augustine, said of verse 9 that the babies, which he considered to be adulterous lust, must be destroyed so that a man might be saved. We don't know what to do with this. Because it's so difficult, because it's so violent, people just have to allegorize it. To, 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 to lighten the mood a little bit before we talk about babies, uh, I went into Carl, Carl's office, our family minister, last week, and I uh, was going to play a little joke on him. And so I said, hey, Carl, I'm teaching on Psalm 137, and it talks about dashing the babies against the rock. And so I wanted to know if I can go into the kids' rooms and borrow some of their baby dolls and bring them up on stage. And I can say, you see this baby doll? This represents pride, and throw it. You see this baby doll? This represents greed, and throw it. And he's looking at me, and he's like, are you going to do that? And I'm like, no, that would be so weird. I would not do that. But that's what people in church history are doing, right? They're, they're, they're thinking of it as just this metaphorical way. So what do we do with this? How do we understand, one, a, uh, a prayer asking God to kill your enemies? And what do we understand with this violence going on with the children? Let me explain this, and then I'll give you 10 things you need to know about an imprecatory psalm that will help this make sense, okay? You need to understand in the ancient world, Here's what would happen. When you went to war with another culture that was a continued enemy of yours, a lot of times you would kill the entire city. Well, Zach, why wouldn't you just kill the male adults? Well, because when you do that, their kids grow up and you have to have that same war 20 years later. The same thing happens today. A uh, terrorist will get killed and then his son will grow up to be a terrorist. Why? Because he's mad at whoever killed his terrorist dad. And so what would happen a lot of times in the ancient world is you would have to completely destroy the whole city because that's the only way to pull up the root. That's the only way to keep this from being continual warfare all the time. And so what would happen a lot of times is when a nation went into the city, they would kill the men, they would kill the women, they would, I'm not trying to do shock value, we'll see this in the biblical text in a second, they would rip open pregnant women and then they would take infants and they would throw them from the city walls. That's the reference here throwing them from the city walls. It is very violent. Let me give you some passages where this type of ancient warfare is mentioned in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 8, 12. And Hazael said, why does my Lord, talking about Elisha, weep? He, that's Elisha, answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Isaiah 13, 16, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Hosea 13, 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she had rebelled against her God. They fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Nahum 3, 10, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. Here's what verses eight and nine are doing. And then I'll give you 10 things you need to know about how to interpret this psalm and imprecatory psalms, okay? What the psalmist is simply saying is this. When the Babylonians came and destroyed us, they didn't show us any mercy. 
God, may you bless the one who destroys the Babylonians and not show them any mercy. That's what he's saying, okay? That's what he's saying. Now, how do we apply this text to us today? Because this is not like your neighbor Bob forgets to bring up his trash cans and you always hate Bob and you're like, God, please dash his little ones against the rocks. That's not the idea, okay? So how do we understand this this psalm in a precatory psalm today? Let me give you 10 things you need to know. The last one is the answer to that question, okay? I wanna give you these other ones because you need to think about this from several angles, but the 10th one is really the one that you need to know to answer the question. So let's walk through these things. First, the psalmist is asking for what is right. The Jews have been wronged and he is wanting his enemies to receive only what is rightfully theirs. Notice, first of all, anytime you read some sort of imprecatory psalm, the psalmist is wanting what's right. The psalmist is not the bad guy. He's not cheering for injustice. He's cheering for justice. He's cheering for what is right in God's mind, okay? Second thing you need to know. The psalmist enemies are the enemies of God in this case. That's not always the case with us. This is not just some type of personal vendetta, but an appeal for God to strike down God's enemies. So I said in the Old Testament, you have God and Israel versus the pagan nations and demons, and those two go together, okay? So to say it as strongly as I can, spiritual warfare and state-sponsored warfare are the same thing in the Old Testament. Israel is doing Old Testament-style jihad. It is Israel fighting their enemies, and at the same time, God fighting his enemies, You see this when God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. He says that he will go to war with the gods of Egypt. Yahweh is destroying the gods of the other nations. So notice, this is not just a personal vendetta. This is is the nation and their God being joined together, that the psalmist's enemies are also God's enemies. Number three, the psalmist is is a representative of the Israelite community. Again, the idea of personal retaliation is missing from the psalm. Here's what I mean by that. This psalmist is not just talking about how he is mad. The psalmist stands in as a representative for the nation of Israel. Let me give you an example. If you come up to me and you curse at me and you backhand me across the face as Zach, okay? You backhand, maybe you want to do that. You backhand me across the face. You're not attacking me. You're not trying to stab me. You backhand me across the face and you curse at me. What does the Bible command me to do? Turn the other cheek, not to take vengeance, not to strike you back. That's even why it says strike you on the right cheek. The idea is that it's a a backhand. Someone's insulting you. Now imagine for a second that I'm a police officer who's a Christian and you come up and you curse at me and you slap me. Well, now I have to do something. Not because I'm disregarding Jesus's command because you haven't just slapped me in that instant and since you've slapped the state, you've slapped the governing authorities and so then I have to take appropriate action. That's what's going on here. He's not just a personal guy with a vendetta. Rather, he is a representative for the state. He's a representative for Israel. The same thing is true in the military, okay? We as a church don't fight people as a church, but if you join the military, then you're fighting off terrorists or whatever because you're under the role of the state. You have to keep those things in mind. It's not like me and other staff members go to Afghanistan on behalf of Parkway. We've got like Parkway morale patches, and it's like me and Tim, And I'm like, songbird, songbird. This this is pastor actual break. You got tangos coming up on your six over. That's not happening, okay? By the way, do you like that his call sign was songbird because uh, he's a music minister? Okay, so we're not doing that. But if we join the military, then we can because then we're a representative of the state. So keep in mind that in this case, he's representing Israel or rather Judah. I keep saying Israel. I'm using those terms interchangeably. I realize the two kingdoms are different. uh, So give me the benefit of the doubt. Number four. There is a psychological benefit to imprecation whereby a person gives their anger to God instead of pursuing a vengeful action on their own. 
In fact, one of the reasons why we know that we can forgive is because we can give our concern for justice to God who will take care of it eventually. Let me say it stronger to you. If you have bitterness in your heart towards anyone, you are calling God a liar. For you to refuse to forgive somebody who's wronged you, the reason you're doing so is because you think that God is a liar. You don't think God will handle it rightly. You're like Jonah, who's mad that God might not destroy Nineveh. But I'm saying God can destroy Nineveh if Nineveh doesn't repent. So keep that in mind. Number five, the imprecation of Psalm 137 is primarily about an evil city or people. Here the emphasis, please hear this, is not on the babies per se, but rather the fact that God judges evil cultures. Okay? So this text isn't really about the babies. When he mentions that, he's just mentioning an aspect of ancient warfare. That's not his point. The, the psalmist doesn't hate babies. The point is that may you be absolutely overthrown. May what often happens in ancient warfare happen to you. He's mainly against the Babylonian culture. He's against the Edomite culture. He's not just, it's not about babies per se. So if you're someone in here and you've lost a child and you think this is hard to hear because we're mentioning babies, the psalmist isn't really about the babies, The psalmist is about the evil Babylonians. Number six, the imprecation can be used to make us ask, listen to this, if there is anyone praying this prayer against us. In this sense, it's also reflexive. So when you're reading the Psalms and you come come across an imprecatory Psalm, you should ask, is there anybody that's praying this about me? Is there anybody that's praying for my demise? In fact, had Babylon asked this question originally, the psalmist would not have had to pray it against them. So there's a reflexive element. Have I wronged somebody? Do I need to make restitution? Do I need to do something uh, for someone else because I have wronged them? Number seven, we cannot assume that our enemies are God's enemies. This text can be twisted really quickly into something weird if you assume that your enemies are God's enemies, okay? That's not always the case, though it is sometimes. Number eight, it must be kept in mind that the judgmental language in verses seven through nine must be read in light of all of the Psalms and one might add the rest of the scriptures to keep a balanced perspective. If you're someone who just focuses on the passages about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, you might think that it's wrong for someone to go to war. You might think it's wrong to want God to judge somebody and you'll be unbalanced in your perspective. Conversely, if you just focus on these passages, you'll become unbalanced the other way and you don't, won't realize the times where you need to forgive and love and turn the other cheek and these kind of things. Number nine, this another one's really, really important. This is a Christological way to read imprecatory Psalms. Jesus is the one who's taken the wrath that God has for you. Every time you read this type of violent language in the Bible, this really aggressive language of God destroying his enemies, you need to think, I'm that enemy. To God, because I've rebelled against him, I'm Babylon. I deserve to have my little ones dashed against the rock. That's me. But because of Christ, because he has taken the wrath of God, because he has died a sacrificial death in my place, God has no more wrath for me. You see, when you're lost, imprecatory psalms are about you. When Christ, when you become a believer, you realize that those imprecatory psalms are poured out on Christ for you. Keep those things in mind. And then here's the answer to your question. Okay, Zach, how do I take these passages where the psalmist is praying for God to judge our enemies and apply it today? Here's how you apply it. Number 10, okay? You apply it to demons. That's how you apply it today. The psalmist is praying that God would smite his enemies. You can pray the same thing. Here's what's changed. Listen to me. Who your enemies are. That's what's changed. You see, in the Old Testament, when you are the physical people of Israel and you are following God, your enemies are God's enemies. Physical warfare and spiritual warfare are the same thing. In the New Testament, though, when you lose the ethnic element that the gospel goes out to all nations, you're saved by faith, not by following Mosaic law or being Jewish. 
which by the way is one of the reasons you shouldn't do infant baptism. You lose the uh, physical family aspect. You lose the ethnicity aspect. Your family are those who have faith. As the gospel goes out, what changes is who your enemies are. So how do you apply this psalm? Well, David, or David, whoever wrote it, probably not David actually, whoever wrote it is praying it against their enemies. You pray it against your enemies, but then ask yourself biblically, who are my enemies? Because the Bible answers that for us as well. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's humans, but against the rulers. These are all names for demons, by the way. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the pre- this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Genesis 3.15 has the same language. I assume we're having more technical difficulties, so just hear me. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Your enemies are the followers of Satan. They're demons. They're those who uh, are oppressing the people of God. And then Romans 16.20 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The way you, imp- you apply imprecatory psalms today is you ask for God to deliver you from what is evil. You ask for God to deliver you from spiritual forces. You can pray psalms against demons. God, deliver me from spiritual attack. God, smite Satan. God, please crush demons. God, if I am being spiritually attacked, would you absolutely destroy my enemies? That's a good and righteous thing to do and it's something we never do. It's something we never do as Christians, but that's how you apply imprecatory psalms. You ask God to smite your enemies, and your enemies are not humans. Those are potential evangelism targets. Rather, your enemies are what is demonic. That should give you a ton of peace. The the Bible doesn't give us a lot of direction on how to do spiritual warfare. You get a bunch of weirdos when it comes to spiritual warfare, right? They're like, they've got garlic around their neck, and they've got a crossbow, and they're ready to become blade and go demon hunting or something like that. Here's what the Bible says. This is is basically most of what the Bible's going to say about spiritual warfare. Ready? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's it. You feel spiritually attacked? Repent of your sin and ask God to fight for you. Don't talk to the demons or whatever. Ask God to fight for you. That's how you apply a passage like this. Now, for some of us, we hate this text because we realize that God isn't just nice, princess, squishy God, but rather, he, as the Bible would say, is a man of war that he is aggressive, that he is uh, wrathful, that he has vengeance. He cares about that. Let me end by giving you a little snippet from a, uh, a detective thriller on why this is important. There's a British detective thriller called Original Sin written by an author named P.D. James. And in this book, there's this Jewish man and his friend who's a woman who doesn't really have a religious leaning, doesn't really have a religious conviction. And here's what the woman says to the Jewish man. She says this, If I had a God, meaning she's not very religious, if I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, cheerful, and amusing. She's saying, if I was to be religious, if I were to follow God, I'd want all these happy characteristics. And here's what her Jewish friend says. It's great. Listen to this. I doubt whether you'd find him much of a comfort when they herded you into the gas chambers. You might prefer a God of vengeance. Let's pray as we transition into communion. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit confess that you are great. I pray that you would help us with texts like these, that we wouldn't be embarrassed about your word, that we'd realize on places where we feel uncomfortable the problems with us and not with Scripture. And I pray that you would uh, smite Parkway's enemies, that if we are at all being attacked, if we are at all, uh, you know, uh, having to deal with spiritual warfare, which I know we have to deal with from time to time, that you would just protect us. 
We long for the day where as Romans promises that you'll crush Satan under our feet. And we know that in a sense his head has already been crushed by a wounded heel on the cross. And so we thank you. In the meantime, we rejoice. In the meantime, we, uh, we pray that you'd make us bold, that you'd make us aggressive, that you would make us zealous for you and for your word. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.